Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may tune in. This is Minister Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and this is another lesson in our Bridge to Excellence study of the book of Hebrews. We are almost finished. This is lesson 19, and we're going to talk about a better future. And hopefully we will finish it with one more lesson or at the most two. So today we'll be finishing Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to read and cover verses 18 through 29 by the help of the Lord. That is our goal. I want to read Hebrews 12 beginning in verse 18 to start us off. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, or Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Praise be to God. Let's get started looking at this section and a few other scriptures that we will bring into this discussion as well so that we understand what the Lord is speaking of here. We've learned so far throughout this book, every portion of this book is talking about better. Jesus being the better. He's the better hero, the better role model, the better sacrifice, the better high priest, the better atonement. Everything about him is better, more excellent. And here in this passage in chapter 12, we've really focused on him being the better hero, the better role model, and how through his example, he teaches us and encourages us how we cannot grow weary or become discouraged. So now in verse 18 through 29, we want to discuss this section and see what he's telling us here. Because remember, in the very first of this chapter, he talked about running our race so that we would finish well as Jesus did when he endured the cross and he was able to finish well. 
So here the author begins in verse 18 to reminisce and take us back to Exodus chapter 19 and 20 and to Deuteronomy chapter 4 and 5. He talks about how we've not come or we've not approached or drawn near to this mountain that could be touched and burned with fire. He's taking us back to the children of Israel's experience at Mount Sinai when the Lord came down and met with Moses on that mountain. Now, it was an awe-inspiring and a frightening sign that happened there. But he's saying here that our race, our choices, our experience is not wearying or frightening as theirs was. They saw the holy presence of the living God with literal burning fire that was burning on the mountain. This cloud of fire and smoke, this mountain that would be burned and engulfed in this cloud. And it was a visible sign to them. Ours is not like that in the sense that we have that visible sign. But he will tell us later. But he tells us that our experience and our interaction as we draw near and approach is with the heavenly Mount Zion. And he defines more of that, and he tells us what's there, who's there, so we know exactly. He says, we have come to Mount Zion, or Zion, and to the city of the living God. This heavenly Mount Zion is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and it is in heaven above. It's interesting because The Hebrew word for Jerusalem is Yerushalayim. And in that word, it actually speaks plurally. It talks about the two Jerusalems. That I am on the end of the word makes it plural. It's speaking of the two Jerusalems. There is one physical one here in the land of Israel, but there's also one in heaven. And we now are coming Ephesians says that we are seated in heavenly places with the Lord. In a spiritual sense, that is true, even though we're still in a physical body here on earth. Our home, our fellowship, our citizenship is in heaven, in the heavenly Jerusalem. So he says we're drawing near, we're approaching, we're coming near, to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now notice who all is there. He says to an innumerable company of angels, 10,000 representing a number that cannot be counted. It's a myriad of angels. It's an indefinite number. So many you cannot even imagine it. I want us to turn now and look at a passage In Daniel chapter 7, in Daniel chapter 7, I want to read verses 9 and 10. I'd like to come back to this later on, but for now, I'm going to read verses 9 and 10. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. 
This is talking about that indefinite number, that number that cannot be counted, a myriad of angels, innumerable amount of angels. These are those good ones in heaven that are doing the work that God bids them to do and sends them to do. Remember, these represent two-thirds of all the ones that God created. The other third fell with Satan when he fell like lightning from heaven. But these angels, this number that cannot even be numbered, cannot be counted, are the innumerable company of angels that are ministering before the Lord. He says then, we've come to the mountain where the general assembly is, to the heavenly Jerusalem where the general assembly is. This word in the Greek is talking about a festive and joyous assembly. It represents universal companionship and assembly of the entire people. And he says not only the general assembly, which could represent the whole of God's people from beginning all the way through the end, including the church. But then he also includes the church specifically. And he says, and the church of the firstborn, the ecclesia, which is the church in the New Testament, the community of believers, the general assembly of the believers in the New Testament, in the believers in Jesus Christ, Jesus is the firstborn. He is the first and only begotten Son of the living God. And we are a part of his family. We are a part of his bride. Perhaps it even includes us representative of that fact, as we are told in John chapter 1, verse 12, and in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Could also include the Old Testament and the New Testament saints. Or... These descriptions could appear to describe two distinct groups. We're not sure about that, but it is inclusive of everybody in one way or another. All of the saints that come to know the Lord Jesus and their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life and they are born again of the Spirit of the living God and serving Him. All of these, we are told, are written in heaven. They are written in heaven in the Lamb's book of life. Just like he told the disciples in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, these are those that are written in heaven because they believed in Jesus Christ and he has written their names in the Lamb's book of life as it says in Psalm 87, verse five and six. We're also told God, the judge of all is there, God the Father. We're told that the spirits of just men made perfect are there. This probably refers to the dead in Christ, those who have died previously to Christ's return for us all. These spirits are in the presence of the Lord, just like Paul said, but not yet reunited with the body. The body will be reunited at the resurrection when Jesus comes for us. These spirits are made perfect in Jesus, but not yet in their glorified bodies. We're told that Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, is there. That is who he is. And Paul tells us that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. He is the only mediator between God and man, Jesus. Also, this is the third time in the book of Hebrews 
that Jesus is called the mediator of the new covenant. We see it also in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, chapter 9, verse 15, and here as the third time. We're also told that the blood of sprinkling is there, and we're told a specific fact about this blood. But what is this referring to? It's taking us back to understand the blood of sprinkling that was sprinkled on the altar of incense and on the mercy seat at the Ark of the Covenant during the Day of Atonement. So it's drawn from that Old Testament in the Torah, the tabernacle observances in the priestly service. Do you see, beloved friend, the Bible is one book, and to understand the book of Hebrews, you must understand its connection to the Old Testament, and particularly to the priestly services and the sacrifices, because the author of the book of Hebrews is explaining how Jesus fulfilled all of those and how the connection is there, and Jesus is better than any of those ever were, although they were good in their time and for their purpose that God had established. So this is drawn from the Old Testament. It refers to Jesus' blood, his sacrifice on the cross, and its effect. What is that effect? It tells us here it speaks better things than the blood of Abel. Now, Abel refers to the very first person who was killed or murdered and shed innocent bloodshed that should never have been shed in that way. So Abel had innocent bloodshed that was poured out. And we are told in Genesis chapter 4, verses 10 through 11, that Abel's blood cried out from the ground for vengeance. His blood cried out to God. Innocent blood that has been spilled all the way from Abel to today cries out for vengeance. I want you to see that in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. It's speaking of all the souls who have been martyred, all of those who've had innocent bloodshed, particularly for the cause of Christ. It says this, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. So the innocent bloodshed that falls to the ground cries out to God from the ground for vengeance. However, the blood of Christ speaks better than that because the blood of Jesus cries for mercy instead. I want you to see that in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Jesus is hanging on the cross now, and it says this in verse 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do, as his innocent blood was pouring upon the ground and going to the ground. In that moment, his blood spoke better than Abel's because his cry is for mercy. Father, forgive them. In saying that, he made both a plea 
and a legal appeal. And I want to direct you to some of my Holy Week messages or the Passover Passion messages because I get into Jesus' seven cries from the cross and what exactly he was saying with each one of those. And this was the very first one. He cried and he made both a plea, but he also made a legal appeal based in Leviticus chapter 4 through 6, where it spoke about the sin and trespass offering. And just to sum this up for you today, when the priest, the appointed priest of the Most High God in that matter, would offer the sacrifice according to God's order, atonement or forgiveness was guaranteed. So he made a legal appeal to God who had promised and guaranteed it when everything was done correctly. So now he's spilling his innocent blood to the ground and his blood is crying greater than Abel's because he is crying out for mercy. He's crying out for your forgiveness and for mine. What a wonderful, wonderful thing and a beautiful Savior. He is so much better. So beginning in verse 25 of Hebrews chapter 12, he now draws us down to the point. And he says, in Moses' day, they refused to listen to God themselves. They sent Moses instead. They were too scared, timid. They didn't want to draw near to God. They were afraid of him with a wrong type of fear. Yes, it was reverent, but they were afraid to even be able to draw near to him. And it wasn't time for that because their atonement had not yet been fully provided for. But for us, we are not to refuse to hear him who speaks from heaven to us. In verse 26 through 28, he reminds us of the consequences and the awesomeness of the holy God and his voice. And then he reminds us in 27 of the shaking that occurs that the very voice of the Lord causes. The voice of the Lord shook the earth. And he will yet again shake both the earth and the heaven, he has said. And this shaking will remove all that can be shaken of the earthly things. It will remove everything that can be shaken in order that the things that cannot be shaken will remain. Those things that are eternal, of eternal value and consequence. So now in verse 28, after warning us to listen to the voice of the Lord and not neglect it, spurn it, or refuse to heed it because it even shakes the earth, as such as in the Mount Sinai experience, how much more in light of what is coming and guaranteed for us. And then he explains what that is. We are receiving a kingdom from the Lord, a share in his heavenly kingdom and in his millennial kingdom reign. He's promised it in several places. I just want us to look at just a couple of those places. In Luke chapter 22, in verse 28 through 30, Jesus is speaking here. This is the last supper or his last Passover Seder with his disciples. And he tells them clearly right here. He says, beginning in verse 28, 
but you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He recognizes that his Father gave him a kingdom, and he is also including us and bestowing a share in that kingdom to us. I want to now go back to Daniel chapter 7, and I want to read a few verses here. Verse 13 and 14. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. It was the Son of Man, praise God, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. It's the one that can't be shaken. It's the one that's not going anywhere. It's the one that is eternal and everlasting. And in verse 18 of Daniel chapter 7, it speaks even of the saints of the Most High receiving their share in this kingdom. Verse 18, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. See, it connects us right here with what Jesus promised in Luke chapter 22. We're receiving the kingdom because he bestowed it upon us just like he promised. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. And then in verse 22, he's speaking of what he was watching and sees, and he says, Until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. There's a share in the kingdom reign with Christ the king as the head. He's the better king, and we have a better kingdom. And it cannot be shaken, which tied us to the earlier verses he had spoken in chapter 12 of Hebrews, that everything that could be shaken is shaken, and the things that are shaken are removed, abolished, disestablished, because the things that remain are the things that cannot be shaken and will not be removed. So this kingdom will remain. It is eternal, everlasting. It's not going anywhere, just like Jesus and Daniel said. Since this is a guaranteed blessing and benefit for all who will believe in Jesus Christ, all the saved, all those called saints, all the saved, the Christians born again and registered in heaven, we have a response and a responsibility. And he gets into that now. He says we're to have grace. In other words, God's favor, God's undeserved merit and kindness. God's grace also refers to the empowering in us by his spirit to make it, to stay the course to finish well, to run our race and complete it. 
that ability to complete our race and obey the Lord until we cross the finish line. That is a gift of his grace through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. His all-sufficient grace, the same as what he promised and gave to Paul to help us endure our race as Jesus endured his cross and finished well. Because we've got a race to run and a course to finish, and God wants every one of us to finish well. So it's by his grace. Hallelujah. Then he says that we are to serve God acceptably. This Greek word serve is latruo, and it's talking about to minister to God himself, to render the service that he deserves, similarly to the priests of the Old Testament. They would worship the Lord, and they would offer sacrifices to God. Now, in our case, we do not offer animal sacrifices ever. That is no longer established, because Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice. We've already seen that earlier in the book of Hebrews. But there are sacrifices that we can offer in the service and worship of our Lord. We'll get into that hopefully in the next lesson as we try to conclude this series in chapter 13. But chapter 13 will tell us exactly what sacrifices are pleasing to the Lord from us today. And it's ways that we can serve him, ways we can worship him, ways that we serve and minister to God. Notice also that these are service to God. Our worship is supposed to be God-directed. Our service is to God. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 through 24 and 25, speak of whatever you do, whatever you do in the service of the Lord, in the worship of our God, do it all with all of your heart, Knowing it's from him, you will receive your reward. Do it unto him. Jesus came to the woman at the well, and he spoke about a day coming when people would worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, and that's what the Father is after. He wants worship that's directed at him in spirit and in truth, and he wants us to do it in a well-pleasing manner, that we may serve the Lord acceptably being well-pleasing to him. Paul spoke of that in a couple of places, one of those being in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that it's his desire to be well-pleasing. That was his aim. So God wants us to serve him, minister to him, worship him acceptably in a well-pleasing manner with, it's interesting, with, accompanied by at the same time, joined with, joined together with, and even perhaps motivated by its inclusion, reverence, the honor and recognition of God's holiness and our littleness in light of him and his presence. It's when we ascribe the worth and value and are careful to obey, love, worship, and awe him, regard him with respect and honor and awe. It's interesting it also included modesty or bashfulness. 
I think that is speaking to us about the humility. When we have reverence of the Lord, we also recognize that we are to value his worth and be careful because it's an act of his grace that we're even able to come before him and serve him at all. So we do it coupled together with, joined with reverence and godly fear, caution, veneration, that carefulness in his presence, what Solomon and the psalmist called the fear of the Lord. There's three places in the Old Testament where we are told the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They're found in Psalm 111, verse 10, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, and Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is still applicable for us today. We don't have to dread God and run away from him as if he's going to strike us dead with some lightning bolt. That's not what it's talking about. But it is talking about that awe and that reverence where we are careful in the presence of the Lord. And we don't treat him as if he's some casual thing or person or that we can just strut into his presence with lack of care as to the way we approach him. But rather, we approach him with proper honor, proper honor, proper awe and respect for him. And then verse 29 tells us the reason we must have this kind of attitude and serve the Lord in this way is because our God is a consuming fire. He is to be worshipped. He is to be served. But he is also to be reverenced and venerated and awed. He cannot be treated casually and without proper respect. There's two examples I want to just draw your attention to. One's in the Old Testament and one's in the New. So that we don't think that this was just an Old Testament thing. Oh no, God is a consuming fire. Always. He is to adored. He is to be venerated. He is to be revered. One is found in Leviticus chapter 10, and it is where two of Aaron's sons just get in their mind impetuously that they're just going to strut into God's presence because they just had a notion they wanted to do so. And so they put fire in their censers and they just go to it. And God strikes them dead in a moment. And God tells both Moses and Aaron, he said, everyone who approaches me, I must be regarded by them as holy. You don't just strut into my presence any time in any way you want to. Now, in the New Testament, because of the blood of Jesus, he's made a new and living way. And we are told that we can come boldly before the throne whenever and however often we do. And that is a precious treasure that we can appreciate. But we have another example in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 5, of a couple that suffered the same fate because they did not honor and revere the Lord and be truthful in his presence. Beloved friend, we are invited to come and partake with the Lord, but we must be careful about our attitude because he is holy. He is holy to be revered and to be appreciated and respected as such.
He loves us, and he wants us to come and have fellowship with him. But we must check our attitude and make sure that we approach him in the right way and that we regard him as holy. Think of it this way as I draw to a close. If you got an invitation, let's say, let's say some very special person, well-renowned, high, high person in class or whatever, some very special dignitary, maybe a king or a queen or a president or someone like that, very high, prime minister, for instance, you're not just going to go in a disheveled, careless fashion to, to have dinner with them or whatever. If you've been invited to a special meeting or a special dinner or a special observance, you're going to take thought. You're going to be careful. You're going to prepare. You're going to make sure that you don't have one wrinkle in your clothes, whatever it may be. You're going to be dressed to the hilt, makeup, jewelry, whatever else. You are going to be on what we might call in the United States your P's and Q's, so to speak. You're going to tread lightly. You're going to be reverent, and you're going to obey whatever protocol they tell you. You might even take an etiquette course or whatever. You're going to prepare, and you're going to give that some due diligence because you recognize you're not just meeting with you know, your brother down the street or your friend from across town or your neighbor. No, you're meeting with someone high and well-respected and who is due some degree of honor. How much more does God deserve from us than any other human being would deserve? How much more? How much greater is God than any human dignitary we could ever meet? And yet we're invited to come into his presence as often as we desire every single day to have fellowship with him. So let us approach him and regard him as holy. The fear of the Lord truly is the beginning of wisdom. And God is worthy of our praise, of our worship, and of our honor. In finishing well and running our race, here we see the guaranteed prize and end for all of us once we finish well is that we have a share in an everlasting kingdom that will not and cannot be removed, ended, or changed before the presence and in the presence of the holy God who deserves our worship, our service, our obedience, and our reverence. How wonderful is our God. How beautiful is his presence. And how gracious has he been to include us and to even want to fellowship with us. May we give him the proper respect and serve him and worship him acceptably all the days of our lives. I pray that this has been a blessing to you. And Lord willing, you can join us again for the conclusion and the concluding episode or episodes of this wonderful study through the book of Hebrews, Bridge to Excellence. God bless you today. In Jesus' name, amen.